Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you have a Bible with you, please open that up to Mark chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, that's okay. There are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can grab one open to page 490. That's where our text this morning is found, Mark 5, 21 to 43. <clears throat> so yeah, I'll just get it out of the way. I got something on the top of my head. I've not converted to Judaism. No, no worries there. Um, but uh, I did have a squamous cell carcinoma removed from the top of my head on Thursday. Uh, I know some of you have been praying for me, so I appreciate that very much. Uh, second skin cancer this summer removed from my head. So um, kind of a strange timing there, but both have been removed. Both are very successful. There's no further threat. Everything is fine. So just my head's a little sore, and I got to wear this for a couple of weeks. So you'll have to get used to it for a little bit, but um, things are good. Thankful to God for His grace, and thankful to you for your prayers and support. Let's draw our attention here to Mark chapter 5. We're going through a sermon series on the gospel of Mark called The Servant King. Um, And I want to begin by asking you if um, you have ever been in a place or in a situation where you found yourself completely without options. That is, have you ever found yourself in a place where you were just confounded as to what to do next? A situation that was completely hopeless. You, you were at the end of your rope, and there were just no options. There was nowhere to look. There was nothing to do. You know, maybe a financial situation. You had a, a bill to pay, an expense to meet, and <clears throat> you just didn't have the money. And the deadline was coming, and you had to pay it, and you just didn't know what to do. You had no one to ask. There were just no options for you. Or maybe vocationally, you at work were working on a project and ran into a problem, and you couldn't figure out the problem, but the deadline was approaching, and the boss is waiting for this project, and you've tried everything, and you, you don't know what to do. There's no options for you, and you're kind of panicky. Or maybe you've been through this existentially. Maybe you've had a time in your life where you were trying to seek meaning in this life, and so you were looking around for something that would make you feel fulfilled, and so you tried promiscuity, and you tried drugs, and you, and you tried atheism, and, and you tried everything, and then you just found yourself empty, and at the end, you thought there's just no options, and you were left in this state of desperation and panic. If you've had that situation, do you remember that feeling, just that that desperate feeling, that panicky feeling. Maybe some of you here today are experiencing that kind of feeling even right now. There is, uh, in Catholic theology, um, known as uh, St. Jude. St. Jude is known as the patron saint of lost causes. And what we're about to look at here in Mark chapter 5 are two people who fit in that category very well. Lost causes. No options, no place to look. It's kind of a bleak picture that I'm painting for you here in this introduction, but I want you to know that actually to be in that place has great advantage. Because when you are in a place where you have no options and you're feeling desperate, that is when you are most inclined to call out to God for mercy. Isn't that true? 
It's hard to pray when things are going well. It's easy to pray when things aren't going so well. You all remember George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life? You remember this scene where he's in that bar and he has just come to the end of his rope. Um, He doesn't know what else to do. I mean, it's a perfect picture of somebody entirely without options. And you know what he does? He prays. And in this scene, he, he calls out, and, and, and you can just tell the way Jimmy Stewart handles this scene, it's, it's hard for him to do it, but he musters up the words, and he says, he says, God, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there, show me the way. That's what we do very often, isn't it, when we get to a place of desperation. Well, again, here in this chapter, Mark chapter 5, we're meeting two desperate people. But not just desperate people, two desperate people who are going to give to us a great example of faith. And so that's really kind of an underlying theme in this passage as these two um, individuals of lost causes are presented to us here in Mark 5. So I'm going to be reading verses 21 to 43, so if you're able to stand, please do that. It's a little bit of a longer text, but... You'll recall that we've been reading about Jesus uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee in this boat, and he encountered this enormous storm, but they made it to the other side, and then Jesus met this demoniac, and he healed the guy, and then got back in the boat now, and has gone back across to the other side, and Jesus is getting out of the boat, and as usual, crowds are there to greet him, and so that's where we're picking up the narrative here, Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, 
Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Holy Spirit, would you please give us ears to hear and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay. Two lost causes, two desperate situations. Before we look at this text, and we will look at it in some detail, uh, I want you to notice, first of all, before we get to our main points, how different these two individuals are. We've got these two people. One's Jairus, and one is this woman. And it seems that Mark is presenting this to us in a way that we would notice how different these people are. So, for instance, we've got Jairus, who a man, male. We've got a woman, of course, female. We've got a man and a woman. We've got Jairus, one who is given a name, but we don't hear anything about the woman's name. She's nameless. We've got Jairus in a position of authority. He's the ruler of a synagogue, but we have a woman who has no position at all. We have Jairus coming presumably in good health. Uh, We have a woman here who is in poor health with this discharge of blood. We have Jairus, a man who has people around him. People come to talk to him from his household. He's, he's got a community. We have a woman here who apparently is all alone. We have a man of status and privilege. We have a woman of shame and humiliation. And one of the ways we see this demonstrated is in the way these two approach Jesus. Jairus comes, falls down at his feet. Jairus comes before Jesus' face, but notice in verse 27, the woman approaches Jesus from behind. She doesn't have the guts, she doesn't have the courage covered in her shame. There's so much difference to be seen in these two people, and yet they have one thing in common. They've run out of options. They are desperate They are faced with challenges, and nothing else has worked, and they're thinking maybe Jesus can help. And so in both cases, that's what we're seeing. So let's look at these two individuals in more detail. First of all, we have this woman of shame. Let's look at her and how she approaches Jesus. Starting in verse 21, we're beginning with uh, the start of the story here, and actually begins by telling us about Jairus. So We learn a little bit about this guy, Jairus, verse 22, we see he's the the ruler of a synagogue, so maybe you remember a synagogue was a place of worship for Jewish people. It's not the same as the temple. Uh, The synagogue was a place you'd find in Jewish towns, and um, songs would be sung, and the word would be read, and this guy's the ruler of the synagogue. He's not a priest or a pastor. He's not a professional. The synagogues were run by lay people. And so this is a layman, but nonetheless, he's in a position of authority. He's the one who's in charge of what happens at the synagogue. He organizes and administrates all that takes place. 
And he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet in verse 22. And he explains to Jesus what's going on. He's got this daughter, verse 23, who is at the point of death. And so he, he lets his request be made known. And you see at the start of verse 24 that Jesus responds. This is a real need. And so Jesus goes with him. And so off they go, presumably to Jairus' house. But at just that moment, there's an interruption. A, a woman comes out of the crowd, verse, verse 24, and she calls on Jesus and, and interrupts his route to go with Jairus. And so we learn here in verse 25 and following something about this woman. She's had this discharge of blood for 12 years. And she's been to these physicians, and she's been looking for help, and the physicians can't help. In fact, she has suffered under the physicians. So these doctors and physicians have actually made the problem worse. So maybe you've had that experience. You went to a doctor, you got prescribed some kind of medication, you had an allergic reaction or something, it didn't go as planned, and, and you found that the cure was almost worse than the illness. And that seems to be the case for this woman. So she's been looking for help. She's gone to the doctors. The doctors can't help, and she is totally out of options. So she comes to Jesus. Now, why am I saying that this is a woman of shame? And the reason why is because um, we don't see anything here in the text about anything that this woman had done wrong. We don't see that she has sinned in, in any way. She hasn't done anything to uh, offend God. I mean, of course, she was a sinful woman. All people are sinful. But in this particular case, we don't see that there's any sin that she has, um, is concerned about. But nonetheless, she comes with this great fear, right? It's, uh, uh, she comes a, a little later. We learn that she has come to Jesus in fear and trembling. Verse 33, uh, she, she's afraid to present herself and the reason is because she seems to be a woman who is shameful, not because of something she's done, but because of a condition that she has inherited. And sometimes you'll hear about uh, you know, abuse victims, for instance, those who have suffered physical, sexual, verbal abuse, very often are covered in shame. And it's not because of anything they have done, it's because what was done to them. And it's a very sad thing, the shame that abuse victims carry with them. This woman is not a victim of abuse, but she is the victim of this, this illness. And the reason why there seems to be some shame connected to this is if you go back to Leviticus chapter 15, you will learn that when there is an emission of blood in this way, that makes the woman unclean for seven days. So she's unclean. But if you read that chapter, you'll find that it's not just the woman who's unclean, it's anyone who touches her is unclean. And it's not just that anyone who touches her that's, un, that's unclean, it's anything that she touches becomes unclean. And then anything that anybody else touches that she has touched, then they become unclean. And so you can imagine how alone this woman has been. This has been going on for 12 years, constantly for her. Imagine how she has been rejected. Imagine how isolated she has been. Imagine how lonely she must feel. Imagine how helpless she must feel. No one has hugged her in 12 years. No one has even shaken her hand. No one has touched her on the shoulder 
Perhaps no one has even looked her in the eye for 12 years. And she's tried to get this healing, and, and nothing has happened. And it's not her fault, but she's covered with shame, and she comes before Jesus with fear and trembling. But there's hope here in verse 27 because it says that even in her helplessness and even after seeking these physicians, she heard reports about Jesus. So the gospel got to her. Remember last week we talked about being runners, that all of us are runners. That is, we are to carry the gospel and deliver the gospel to people who haven't heard. Well, somehow the gospel got to this woman. Somebody told her about Jesus. And this woman, hearing about this man who has been healing, she is filled with faith. And she thinks, I have got to go. I am going to go find this man. Now, that's significant because, right, she is unclean with this blood problem. She shouldn't even be out in public. And she certainly shouldn't be touching a rabbi. But this woman is bold. She has to get to Jesus. And she's going to do whatever she can. And so she pushes her way through to reach the man that she is about to place faith in. Faith in. This is an example to us all. And friends, you know what? I think what's going on here is that this woman is providing an example even for Jairus. That's why we have this interruption, right? Jesus and Jairus are going on their way. The woman comes and interrupts. Jesus is now talking to the woman, but Jairus is still there. And he's observing, and he's watching. And this ruler of the synagogue, this man of status and privilege, is about to be taught a lesson by a woman of shame and humiliation. And it's a lesson in faith. And there is nothing that's going to stop this woman from getting to Jesus. I mean, you can imagine the excuses that she probably made in her mind, you know. Why go to Jesus? I mean, the doctors couldn't have helped. So... How could he possibly respond to me? I'm a woman. It's a patriarchal society. I'm I'm unclean. I have nothing to offer. I've spent everything that I have. What are the chances that this man Jesus would respond to me? She had every excuse in the book not to pursue Jesus, and yet with boldness she went anyway. And friends, it's just an encouragement to all of us. I would just ask you today, you know, what is your excuse for not pursuing Jesus? What, what is it that you have set up that is keeping you from drawing closer to Him through His Word, in prayer, in the church? What is your excuse? Maybe it's that you're not desperate enough. Maybe it's that you're not out of options yet. Very often, again, that is what the Lord uses to draw us to Him. There's a commentator, James Edwards, says this, despite embarrassing circumstances, this woman pushes through both crowd and disciples to reach Jesus. Her gender, namelessness, uncleanness, and shame, none of these will stop her from reaching Jesus. Can that be said of you? Nothing's going to stop you from reaching Jesus. Let it be said of us all. And let this woman be an example to all of us, this woman of shame. Well, the second person we see is this man of privilege. The man of privilege. So I've described to you already a little bit about this man, and he also is in a desperate situation. And this is a reminder to us, I think, that you know, even people who seem to have everything can suffer their own heartache. 
You know, very often we look at who we consider to be people of privilege, and we resent them. And we think they don't have problems. And we get caught up in the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Very often the have-nots resent the haves. But listen, friends, death reaches the door of the privileged as well. And this man is suffering heartache here. We saw this even this week, right? Even the Queen of England eventually dies. We're starting to wonder if that would ever happen as she reached 96 years old. But even a person of privilege like the Queen of England dies. And here's this man of prominence and authority. And this is his, his little baby girl. He cradled this girl in his arms. He remembers that time. He, he looked ahead with hopes about what this girl would do, who she would marry, one day grandchildren. She, he had high hopes. He, he probably remembers her very first word. And now he's wondering if he has heard her last word because she's near death. And we see in verse 42 that she is 12 years old. Isn't that interesting? The woman had the disease for 12 years, and here's this daughter who is 12 years old. Uh, but this, she is at death's door. She is, she is almost deceased, and it's just a shocking thing. I, I don't know if you remember, those of you who are maybe a little older, remember this girl named Samantha Smith um, back in the 80s. And a uh, <clears throat> 12-year-old girl, and she um, became aware of the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union, <laughs> and she became concerned about nuclear war, and she wrote a letter to the leader of the Soviet Union and just said, you know, I don't want to see war and I hope you all, you know, want peace as much as we do. And, and she got invited to go to the Soviet Union and they showed her around there and she became known as America's youngest ambassador. She just became this symbol of world peace. Cute little girl, really infectious smile. And she died in a plane crash at like 13 years old, just a couple months into her 13th year. I mean, you, you expect someone who's 96 to die, but you don't expect someone who's 12 to die or 13 to die. And so that's what this, this man is dealing with. This is just not the way it's supposed to be. My little girl is at death's door. She's not dead yet, though, right? Okay, she's not dead, and, but, and, and he's got Jesus, and so they're, they're on their way to the ruler's house, and um, there's you know, no time to waste. I mean, we've got to hurry, Jesus. You can imagine him maybe taking Jesus by the arm and they're trotting along the path. And then this woman shows up and, and Jesus stops to talk to her. Now, just imagine how anxious and fearful that must have made Jairus. You can imagine him saying or at least thinking, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? You are wasting precious time. This woman can wait. This has been going on for 12 years for her. She can wait another two hours, couldn't she? Come on, Jesus, let's go. And what happens? During the delay, this man's worst nightmare comes true. And verse 35 tells us that while he's still speaking to this woman, people come from the ruler's house and they deliver the news. Your daughter is dead. I just can't imagine how frustrated he must have been with Jesus in that moment. Have you ever found yourself frustrated with Jesus? 
little angry because his timetable was different than yours? A little upset that he didn't act more quickly. I'm guessing that's the way Jairus was feeling here. Your daughter is dead. Now he's really out of options, right? What are you going to do now? Actually, there is an option. And Jesus presents it to him in verse 36. And we see that Jesus overhears these people who have come to tell him that the daughter is dead. And he turns to the ruler and he says, Do not fear, only believe. That's an option. You can do that, ruler. There is one option. You can trust me. I mean, I'm sure that the ruler had a lot of confidence that Jesus could heal his daughter when she was ill. That's what he says in verse 23. He says, you just lay your hands on her and she'll be made well, Jesus. So the ruler had confidence in that. And so I'm sure Jesus thought that's good. You had confidence that, that I could heal her. But do you believe I can raise her from the dead? You believe that? See, this is what Jesus is always doing. As He is engaged in our lives, as He is showing us grace and doing mighty things, He is always stretching us, friends. He, he is responding to our faith, and He's stretching our faith at the same time. When Jesus is in your life, He's not going to leave you as you are. And that's going to be challenging. And sometimes that means you wait. Sometimes that means there's disappointment. Sometimes that means things don't work out like you had hoped. But what Jesus is doing is building faith in you, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing with this ruler. Do you believe I can raise her from the dead? And it's a challenge to all of us who have just grown cynical and tired of our faith. For those of us who have just given up on God doing anything truly significant and powerful in our lives. We're just, we're just so used to the routine thing, and we kind of give up on God, don't we? And we don't ask Him for big things anymore. I mean, do you believe, friends, that, that God can send revival? Do you believe that? Do you believe that He can change our nation by converting people to Jesus and cause the church to flourish and grow once again? Have you given up on that? I mean, do you believe that, that God can change the heart of that hardened atheist friend that you've been praying for all these years and there seems to be no movement whatsoever? I mean, have you given up on that person? Have you given up on your marriage? Just feel like there's no hope here. There's no change taking place and you're not even praying for God to do anything anymore. You've given up. That broken relationship, that estranged friend, that son or daughter who's wandered away from the faith. Have you given up or... Can you hear Jesus say to you, do not fear, only believe? This is not a guarantee that God's going to do whatever you want. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel message here. God has the right to do what He wants. He is sovereign and responds to our prayers as He wishes. But sometimes, friends, I just think our cynicism leads us, leaves us praying for very little and expecting very little as well. And then we're surprised that we receive very little. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. That's the God we worship. 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe that? That God is able to do far and abundant more than we ask or think. That's what Jesus is about to do for this, this ruler. And so let's go on to the last point here. We have this woman of shame. We have this man of privilege. But they're approaching a savior of great power. A savior of power. Two people here coming with faith. And so, quick note on faith. Let's just define faith as the Scriptures do. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's, that's faith. Um, but we don't believe that faith is some kind of independent power on its own. Uh, faith is not something where if you just have enough faith, you can do great things. It's not the faith that accomplishes things. It's the object of the faith. It's the one we put our faith in. And that is Jesus. He is the one that does the work, not necessarily our, our faith. That doesn't mean we don't seek to believe strongly in what Jesus can do, but we're trusting Him, not the power of our faith. So I think that's an important distinction, but let's see what happens here. Um, first of all, with the woman of shame. How does she see the power of Jesus? Well, she, she comes, verses 27 and, and 28, as she approaches uh, Jesus, and um, she touches his garment. And what we find is that immediately, verse 29, the flow of blood dries up, and she felt her body, in her body, that she was healed of her disease. Twelve years of disease, and it's instantly gone. She's healed. Uh, Jesus hasn't even said anything. There's so much power in Jesus that merely touching him in faith allows this disease to be healed. So she lives happily ever after and she goes home and the story's over. Is that right? <laughs> no, actually, the story's not over. Jesus is not done because in verse 30 we see that Jesus says, Who touched my garments? And the disciples say, Jesus, what are you talking about? We're in this thronging crowd of people. You're rubbing shoulders with tons of people. How in the world can you say who touched me? There's no way we can find that out. What a silly question. That's what the disciples basically are saying. But Jesus is not deterred by that. And, and you see that um, he, he just starts, he starts looking around to see who had done it. He wants to know who this woman is. And isn't that remarkable? He is persistent because he wants to know this woman that no one has wanted to know for 12 years. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not like a vending machine here that you just come along and get your benefit and, and off you go. I mean, this isn't like a drive-through restaurant here. You just drive in and get your food and off you go. It's like Jesus is saying, if you're going to have a relationship with me, I'm going to have a relationship with you. I, I want to know you. I want to draw close to you. I want you to draw close to me. That's what it is to be a Christian. God is just not this, again, heavenly vending machine where we just get our benefits and move along our way. It's a personal relationship. We walk with Him. He knows us. We know Him. That's genuine Christianity. And so Jesus seeks to know her, and he asks, who is this woman? And so verse 33, she comes out of the crowd. Again, 
fear and trembling. And she falls down before Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, I think one of the reasons why Jesus is talking about her faith particularly here is because perhaps the woman, when she touched his garments, might have been thinking in a very superstitious way. You know, if I can just touch his garment, that'll do it. And sometimes we fall into that kind of superstition, don't we, sometimes? You know, if I could just touch the Shroud of Turin, wow, I mean, who knows what would happen. Or if I could get baptized in the River Jordan, man, that would be great. You know, I mean, there's nothing special about the water in the River Jordan. Uh, There's nothing that's going to happen to you if you touch the Shroud of Turin. There's nothing that's going to happen to you if you touch necessarily the garments of Jesus. So what Jesus is saying, it's not this superstition, it's me, it's your faith in me, Jesus says. That's why you are being made well. But maybe the most significant thing that Jesus says here is the way he addresses this woman, and he calls her daughter. It's like he's saying to this woman of shame, Welcome to the family. Others might be ashamed of you and not want to draw close to you, but I'm not ashamed of you, and I do want to draw close to you, and I want you to draw close to me. Isn't it interesting? This unclean woman touches Jesus, and it's not Jesus that becomes unclean. It's the woman who becomes clean because of faith. Through faith, she receives the cleanliness of of Jesus, the Savior, and is called a daughter of the King. This is the promise of the gospel. Friends, Romans 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. So I don't know what shame you're bringing here today, what shame has been haunting you for your whole life, but through faith in Jesus, that shame and that guilt can be removed forever. So that's how Jesus responds to the woman of shame, but how does he then respond to the man of privilege? How does he see this Savior of power? Well, starting with verse 37, the story finishes, and so they move on. They get to the ruler's house. Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John, his kind of inner circle, and uh, they go to the house, and they enter the house, and there are all these people in verse 38, they're, they're weeping, they're, they're wailing because the, the daughter has, uh, has died, and so there's much mourning going on, and then uh, Jesus says this very significant thing in verse 39, he says, why are you guys making all this commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but she's sleeping. <laughs> and, and they all laugh at him. Do you remember another time when there was laughter in the Bible, if you were here during the Genesis series? <laughs> Remember God making promises to Abraham and Sarah about how you're going to have a child and they were barren and then Sarah laughed? That's, that's, that's the laugh of unbelief. And that's what these people are doing. They're just, uh, you know, what can you do? This is ludicrous to think that she is only sleeping. And we might ask here, why is it that Jesus uses that particular way of characterizing this? Why does he say she's only sleeping? Why, why does he, he, he refer to it that way? And, and I think perhaps the reason why is because When it comes to death, as Pastor Brian was explaining to us earlier, the the wages of sin is is death. When when it comes to death, which is the chief enemy of the human race, the, the problem for which there really are no options, 
When it comes to death, Jesus says, it's nothing but sleep for me. I can raise someone from the dead just as easily as it is for you to wake someone from their sleep. And that's exactly what he does, right? In verse 41, he takes the girl by the hand. Little girl, arise is all he says. And immediately she gets up and everyone is amazed. And Jesus in his compassion is even concerned that she might be hungry. And so gives her something to eat. I remember... um, you know, growing up uh, during school, and I'd be sleeping through the night, and it was time to get up, and it was my mom who would always come in the room, and she'd open the door, and she'd flip on the light, and she'd say, Bobby, she called me Bobby, Bobby, time to get up, and I'd, I'd just wake up immediately. And you know, the day is coming when all of us who believe in Jesus will be asleep in our graves, and Jesus is going to come, and he's going to say, time to get up. (laughs) And he's going to reach down, he's going to grab your hand, and he's going to grab my hand, and he's going to lift us up in our glorious resurrected bodies based on the power of his own resurrection from the dead. Jesus is raised, that means you and I will be raised. Just as he raised this little girl, he's going to raise you and me as well. That's the one thing that I think the human race has no answers for, right? Death. What do we do about death? I mean, we have made a lot of advancements throughout human history, medically and technologically, and we've made great progress, but no one has an answer for the problem of death except for Jesus. And he promises you who trust in him that glorious resurrection. One day it's true. We will rise and live with him forever on a perfected world. And that's something worth singing about. So let me invite the band forward. Let's pray. God, thank you for this promise, Lord, of a resurrection. Thank you for what you did for that little girl all those years ago, raising her up from the dead. And Lord, we long for that day when you will take our hands and do the same. And I pray, Lord, that that would fill our hearts with hope and faith, that we would not draw complacent and cynical, but that we would trust you for great things. You are the one, Lord, who does exceedingly and abundantly more than all we ask or think. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.